G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Deet. Today is Wednesday, the 18th of October. Hang on, the 18th of October. We're recording this episode a week early because Adit is coming up to sunny Queensland. So we won't be here. Woohoo, indeed. So we won't be here uh, early next week. So we're going to, to record this one in the meantime. But you'll have to forgive us if something major does happen yeah, exactly. in, in the next seven days. Um, but we'll be back to normal for the recording on the 31st of October. So if anything does happen, we will cover it then, I'm sure. But this week, our topics are... The Northern Territory Tourist Minister says that all Australians have a social responsibility to visit the Northern Territory. And, I mean, they're not biased at all. And most Australians don't think that climate change is a serious problem. Hmm. Of course, we have our two ticks town talk in between, and then we'll jump into This Week in Australian History with our date, and we'll finish off, as always, with the 4X bottle top question. But before we get all up into all of that, let's catch up in the last day, I guess, in this case. What's been going on with you? Well, today... uh Wife and I, normally on Thursday, we try to have, a, we call it Adventure Day, uh, where we make sure that we get out there and do something, uh, yeah, usually have sort of breakfast out or yeah, something just sort of a bit special. Uh, today, I saw an Ikebana exhibition of invasive plants of the Mornington Peninsula. So... <laughs> So it sounds very boring, but I'm sure it's oh, one of those things look, that isn't. Well, I, look, I suppose it depends on. I suppose it depends on what you you do or don't like. Uh, Ikebana is the art of Japanese flower arrangement. <clears throat> excuse me, which includes uh, the the pot and uh, wood that goes with it, and it's a very ancient. Art. Uh, I mean, if you look up Ikebana and you're uh, even mildly interested in it, you can go down a, an absolute rabbit hole. <laughs> in fact, the lady that was there, it was a uh, oh, we don't have to get a whole lot of details, but basically, it's an area down on Point Nepean that has got a couple of uh, houses where um, the council has artists in residence do things, and she was she was there and. In the course of her telling us a, a, a bit about it, wasn't that there's only the two of us? Apparently, there's a bit of a stuff up with the um, advertising stuff with the council. But she was saying, "Oh, she's part of an Ikebana school," and she said, "Oh, it's a very, it's a very young school, uh, sort of modern one that broke away only about a hundred years ago from the <laughs> from oh, the, wow. one of the main Ikebana schools." So, yeah, it's, look, it's a very, it's a very old art. So yep. she's had all these these beautiful uh, pots and different uh, pieces of uh, of wood to go with it, but she has used as her feature flowers uh, invasive plants on the the Mornington Peninsula. So there's different types of uh, of lilies and cotoniasters. Uh, there was uh, 
nin, I think it's nin, Nindina, sacred uh, Japanese bamboo. So a whole lot of things like this and presented them in an artistic manner for us to enjoy at the exhibition. So look, it was it was up our alley. We like, uh, yeah, it was local. Uh, we like that sort of sort of thing. Um, yeah, I like the pottery. I've done a bit of, still got the old plates on learning some things with pottery. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a good day out. Yeah, pottery is definitely one of those things. There's an art to it. I guess there's a little bit of an art to the whole the whole being a green. I haven't won you over with any of that, have I? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, I, I can definitely ap- appreciate the 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 artistry that goes into it. It's not it's not for me at this point in my life, but there might be a part of my life in the future. Um, I remember years ago, a friend of mine got really into to like bonsais and stuff, and he oh, yeah. Yeah. he had uh, he was I was there when he was was sort of repotting or, or adjusting the roots. I'm not exactly sure exactly what he was doing, but the 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 it, it appeared to be very tedious, and the, the the amount of attention and care that he had for this plant was phenomenal. But I guess that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, it was visually, it was very, very cool. And I was like, oh, I'd love to have one of these. And he's like, no, no you don't. <laughs> You're not ready. It's like, a, you know, maybe once your kids are older and they've moved and, you you know, you need to fill that hole in your heart, you get a bonsai and you can look after it and all that kind of stuff. So, um oh. I think, especially when you're trying to get them established, there's a lot of work. I think once they're, you know, once they're sort of, you've got them in a good pot and that, and I think you kind of, not set and forget, but there's a lot less maintenance. But I think for the first few years while you're trying to get them established, it's pretty full on. So, yeah, um, it, it, it what have you been up to? The complete opposite, basically. Oh. Uh, it's been incredibly dry up here uh, to the point where I don't think we've had rain in probably about six weeks or at least any meaningful rain i think it's it did spit a couple of times today uh but seriously it was it was basically it was enough to get things slightly wet uh but it was so hot that it just uh, evaporated basically straight away so um Yeah. yeah all the grass has gone brown it crunches when you walk on it um and part of me kind of likes when this happens because you can you can see how the water moves through the land based on where the grass is still green. Um, All right, yeah. Just sort of around the neighbourhood, you can get an idea of where the water is moving to um, and things like that. So uh, my grass is a little bit greener than a couple of my neighbours just because I'm sort of, my house is on a, a very, very minor hill, but that's enough to sort of collect the water sort of around my front garden and, and keep it green enough. So, um, and then of course, you do have the occasional neighbor that puts a uh, sprinkler out and just waters their lawn, which I think is a complete waste of water. Um, are you on restrictions or anything? I don't think we are yet, but we likely are going to be uh, in the future, you know. Knowing what we know now about the La Nina El Nino cycle, uh, I think we're probably, you know, at least for 12 months, we're going to be looking, staring down the barrel of some very, very dry conditions. So I'm reluctant to really waste any water 
at any point because I don't know how long this is going to last, you know. As we discussed in previous podcasts, some of these dry conditions can last years and years and years. Um, and obviously, we do have a finite water supply in our local dam that's for town water. Um, I don't have tank water and none of my neighbours do, so... Um, just because our properties, unfortunately, in Queensland, you used to have to put a water tank in when you built a house, but they got rid of that a few years ago. Um, so now people are going back to using town water to water their gardens and and uh, and grass. Gardens, I don't mind so much about, but grass, I think it's just a waste. It's a waste of time. Um, and I don't have a water tank at this property at this time, and I probably won't put one in. Um, so I'm sort of reluctant to waste any water, but... The yeah. upside of that is the grass doesn't grow very much. Um, yeah, so you don't have true. to mow the lawns very often. Just sort of whippersnip the edges uh, and not a lot of weeds grow. Um, and if they do, they die pretty quickly. So it, it, you kind of go into a, a low-maintenance mode. Uh, but it is getting very hot already. Mm. Uh, I think it was about 29 degrees today, degrees Celsius. So it was pretty hot. But um, oh, I like summer. I like the heat. As as our regular listeners will know, I do not like the cold, so I'm not too unhappy about it all. Yeah, well, the mate that I'm going away with, what? Let me get his. Yeah, he sent me uh, a text with the the screenshot of where we're going up further north. Um, the days are going to be around tops of 36, 38, and thirty seven, so it'll be a bit. Uh, it's gonna be hot. A yeah, bit warmer than I. In fact, <laughs> last last night was at one point I was thinking, bloody hell, it's cold. Um, and it got down to a feels like of three degrees. Oof. Yeah, that's Which what is the nice clear to be skies. under the quilt. But yeah, 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 exactly. Clear. Yeah, exactly. Clear so, but yeah, thirty uh, thirty eight, thirty nine is going to be a challenge. Especially changing, you know, the the contrast. If you live up there, but you become acclimatized to it, and it's not so bad. But uh, yeah, Ooh, yeah, that's you're gonna. That's gonna hurt. That's gonna hurt. Um, yep. Speaking of really hot places, do Australians have a social responsibility to visit the Northern Territory? That's what the Northern Territory's tourism minister has been saying. As new figures reveal, visitation to the Northern Territory is struggling and the Territory's famed landmark of Uluru has completely dropped off a cliff, essentially. Uh, The Parks Australia data shows Uluru visitation has stayed incredibly sluggish in 2023. As Uluru Katajuta National Park heads into its hot summer season, the annual quieter tourism season year-to-date numbers are st- sitting at 164,678 compared to more than 300,000 in 2017 that's not good yeah, of course it's a huge drop and those numbers aren't going to continue to really rise too much more than what they are now just because we are heading into summer and of course, the summer season isn't when Uluru is is at its busiest because of the heat. Uh, of course, in 2020, Uluru tourism figures plummeted due to COVID-19 border closures. But now operators say the remote region is still struggling to claw back its pre-pandemic visitor numbers. The Northern Territory's tourist 
Minister Nicole Manison said Territorians aren't getting the level of service they deserve in relation to the choice and cost of air travel to Uluru. She was asked if it was hypocritical of Qantas to be supporting the Uluru Statement from the Heart campaign whilst it cut flights to Uluru during the same period. Hmm. Miss Madison also said there was a social responsibility for all Australians to make sure they were travelling to the Northern Territory to help improve economic outcomes for the jurisdiction. Some bold words, though I guess it is her job. Qantas did not directly answer how many flights it had cut from the region in the last two years, but a spokesman for the airline said that Qantas and Jetstar remain committed to flights to and from Uluru, while our major competitor has pulled out of the market. Tourism Australia, sorry, Tourism Central Australia Chief Executive uh, Danielle Rothford said... We're always keen to remind our national airline that the NT in Qantas stands for the Northern Territory. Ah. Oh, (laughs) that is a good burn. Isn't it? So, is this really an access issue or is Qantas just following the customer's desires and prioritising its aircraft elsewhere, as we call it, the guiding hand of the market? The customer is always right, as they say. Yeah, look, I, did, I, I, oh, sorry, go on. I did have a quick look for the pricing of flights from Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne to Uluru. I want you to guess, what do you think a one-way flight, this is uh, fares for the next 30 days, So, but they were fairly representative, starting from price, mm. flying from Melbourne to Uluru, one way per adult, do you care to guess what how much it would be? Starting price, Melbourne to Uluru, one way... Um... As in, like the the economy price. Yes. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say seven hundred and sixty. Wow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's considerably more than it actually is. So, how much start, is it? Starting price from Melbourne for one way per adult is five hundred and ten dollars. Uh, Sydney okay, was 437 from Sydney, and it was 478 from Brisbane. I don't know why it's more expensive from Brisbane, because it's actually a shorter flight, but, but yeah, not sure. Mm, look, um, I, I did, I, I, I suppose, look, I, I suppose Qantas at the moment really has, has donned a big black hat. Now, with, with Joyce buggering off, maybe it's going to change things. So I was. I was thinking with how they've been and with how they've been squeezing things, I thought that something like that uh, they may well be putting on the extra squeeze. I still don't think that's a cheap airfare, though. No, it definitely isn't. And that's the economy. I I bet as soon as you you move into ones with a little bit more of a guarantee or ones that you're, um, you know. Yeah, these are the the lowest. Yeah. Yeah. These are the lowest flexibility. Flexibility, it'd have to be at least around my guess, if not a bit more. 
Yes, so you're you're exactly right. It, these are the lowest. I think they call them the Red E deals or something like that. Mm. These are the mm. cheapest fares for the period. Um, can you actually get that price? Probably not. Yeah. Um, well, that's the other side, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's probably going to be considerably more than that. Um, so you look. But, I can't. I can't blame. I, I can't blame Qantas. <laughs> Stepping back and saying, uh, "Is an airport air um, airline responding to market demand?" I can't really blame uh, an airline doing that. However, in light of what we've learnt about Qantas, to me, it's a bit of a corrupted market, and I'd probably, I'd probably tend to side with some of those criticisms that the um, tourism minister and that was talking about. And I do put some blame on Qantas. However, I also do think, uh, where was it? That was from an ABC article. There was a paragraph that I had highlighted where I have cost availability of flights, international exchange rates, um, and competition as Australians return to overseas travel and the slow return of international visitors. I think that's a fair criticism as well. Um, I can see that it's going to be more than one factor, a confluence of of events. I don't think you can necessarily say it's only Qantas. You can give them a little bit of a sting. But I also think that after everything with the pandemic, people thought, oh, God, just what the opportunity to get out of here. I also think, too, I I know with a couple of friends, I had one who uh, in particular, he did used to do a lot of travel. So during the, the pandemic and the restrictions and that, there were some uh, Australian places that he went to and it was sort of like, oh, okay, well, this is actually a good spot to go to. It was spot up in um, – he hadn't been to Noosa before. They've I gone am. to Noosa a couple of times. There was uh, some trips to other parts in the NT uh, that he'd, he'd gone to, uh, Adelaide, Oh, it's not Adelaide, but around South Australia, there was a couple because he's you know, also got a caravan and that. Went to a few of them, and yeah, he said there's a number of things that he's he's really enjoyed just as much as some of the places he travelled overseas to. So I think there's a real been a real sea change, uh, sea change, tree change, desert change, however you want to say, with the NT mm-hmm. in people's uh, tourist destinations. Yeah, which is really good. Um... And you're right. I think there's uh, personally we used to go overseas uh, quite a lot. Um, however, uh, COVID definitely put the kibosh on that. Also, traveling with three young kids is it is very expensive and very very annoying. Um, so we we haven't been overseas since I think uh, late 2018 now, um, which seems so long ago. Uh, but actually, if I'm honest, we're, we've sort of changed. And I know a lot of other Australians have as well, and we've kind of turned inwards and we're exploring uh, Australia a lot more, which is nice. Um, in our case, we're just, we've got our 4 bm you know, we're, we're, we're doing it that way. Um, but Uluru's always been somewhere I've wanted to go. I mean, we spoke about this when we did the Two Ticks Town Talk a few, uh, well, that was a month first or so of ago. August, first of August this year for when we um, did the Yalara. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it's somewhere I've really wanted to go, though getting to the territory period 
is just it is just expensive to fly there. If you want to go to Darwin, Darwin is one of the most expensive flights anywhere in Australia to get to, just because it's not super super busy and it is quite far away. It is it is really remote um, compared to say I know obviously Perth is further away, but there is a lot of traffic between uh, the East Coast and and Perth in particular. So. Um, whereas there's not to Darwin, so I think this is a combination of factors. Uh, you know, the the like you said, the the fact that there isn't. It's only Qantas and Jetstar, and for our international listeners that don't know, Jetstar is Qantas's low cost airline. They are they are both Qantas essentially. Um, and without any without any competition, they basically can just they've got a they've got a captive market, don't they? So they can just yep. do what they want, um, and that does hurt consumers, but also I think there's certainly a definitely a, a level of people aren't flying into that area right now. People have either been there, done that, doing other things, or they're looking. I think there's probably a little bit of potentially a bit of Australia fatigue as well because a lot of people have been uh, uh, I don't want to say trapped, but they've been, you know, lockdowns and things like that. They can't leave Australia yep. for a long time now. So there's probably a good amount of people that are just like, you know what? I don't I don't want to see any more of Australia. I want to continue seeing some of the world. So I think it's kind of a, a combination of things that's been going on. I do hope that we see this sort of turn around a little bit, but I don't really know. I mean, if I honestly, if I was actually going to go to the territory and go and see Uluru, or I should say, when I go and do it, I'll probably, if I don't drive, I'll probably go to Alice Springs and then I'll probably drive. And I know it's a fair way, but there's a lot to see along the way. So I'd kind of make yeah. probably a bit of a trip out of it. Um, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. You also, that was the other one I was going to mention too, when you, uh, you, you said people feel a bit trapped here and want to go. I mean, you can, you can then say, well, Maybe uh, why, if people are overseas, aren't they feeling uh, similarly trapped and want yes. to go and resume here? I feel like there's a little bit of a scar on the psyche, and I'm guessing that there's a number of people who think, I don't want to be overseas on a long trip and get trapped in another country like happened before with COVID, because it wasn't really handled well by uh, a lot of governments around the world with where their citizens trapped overseas. Uh, it was difficult to get on flights, if not impossible, for a lot of people. Uh, insurance wasn't covering it. I, I mean, for the people who were trapped overseas during COVID, it was a really unpleasant experience for them. And I think that's probably scarred a lot of those people and scarred a lot of people who knew them. Yes, I think you're right as well. I think there's definitely there's a, there's a long COVID hangover, if you like, and yep. I don't think that's going to change. It's going to take quite a few years, I think, to really, um, for people to really kind of get over that long term. I mean, there's always going to be people. There's always going to be the travellers, the people that you know are always travelling and they don't really care and whatnot. And it was never going to stop them. But I think the average Joe blogs, the kind of person that's coming to Australia for the first time and they want to do all the things. Um, also, I mean, the other factor that we've got to consider is the world is in a bit of a recession right now. Yep. People probably don't have the sort of funds because, again, if you're coming to Australia, Uluru is probably one of the big ticket items you want to go and see. But once you get here, 
and you realize it's going to cost you a couple of extra thousand dollars just to get out there to go and see it, you know, that might quickly get dropped off the bucket list and you might just go to Sydney instead. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yep. I think, unfortunately, you know, its biggest draw card, which is partly its remoteness, is its biggest downfall in this situation as well. And I think internationally, I think there's a lot of people that would like to climate and things like that, which is obviously a, a big no-no these days, which we've spoken about before. Um, and maybe there's a bit of that as well. I'm not really sure. I think there's, I think this is a more complicated issue than just, you know, get out there and go and see it. Yeah. You have a social responsibility to do so. I think there's, there's a bit more going on here than just that. But yeah, I think if I you agree. are, if, if you're listening to this and you have been considering, should I go and do it or should I do something else? Maybe... Maybe put it on the short list. Maybe get out there and see it. The people out there would definitely appreciate it if you did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of people in small towns that would appreciate a bit more love from a global audience, I think it might be time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. All right. Two Ticks Town Talk this week is Zehan. Z-E-E-H-A-N in Tasmania. Uh, it's a small town on the west coast of Tassie. It's about a third way, a third of the way down from the top. Got a population of 702. The Greater Zeehan area was inhabited by the uh, indigenous Pirapa and Tomajini clans of the Northwest Group for over 10,000 years prior to British getting down into Tassie. They were uh, mainly coastal people. They resided in small numbers on a diet consisting of mutton birds, seals, swan eggs, and eucalyptus gunnii, and constructed uh, bark huts when the westerlies were up there and it was rainy and icy. Now, as an aside, have you ever eaten mutton bird? No, I haven't. It was the fishiest smelling household invasive thing that I have ever cooked in my entire life. Really? I I, I saw at the butchers once they had, uh, they sold them frozen mutton birds. I thought, oh, mutton birds. I'd love to try that. Oh, I I, um, looked up a recipe and I just, I think, oh, that's, Pretty um, that's a pretty strong smell. And as soon as the heat got into it, and it started opening it up, Ugh. I was opening the windows. My wife, who she's she has an allergy to uh to seafood, so she's not keen on seafood at all. Oh, no. Came in. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> I, look, I, I like pungent things, but no, I, I, I and I had two of them. The second one, I. I cooked it out. I cooked it outside, just far away from the house, opened it <laughs> out of the open. Now, look, I don't know whether it just happened to be something seasonal or that, but I tell you what, it's ticked off the list for me. So, yeah, it just blew me away. I've never smelled a fishier smell like that. Uh, so, good luck to the P Rapper and Tom and Juni clans. Uh, they can enjoy those mutton birds. Um, 
in the circumnavigation of Tassie uh, between 1798 and 99, George Bass and Matthew Flinders named, named uh, two of the mountains in the Heemskirk Ranges, uh, Mount Heemskirk and Mount Zeehan. And Mount Zeehan, and Zeehan is apparently Old Dutch for sea rooster, which was in honour of Tasman's uh, voyage of exploration. That was after two of his uh, his ships. Now, being in Australia, what do you think was discovered at Zeehan that led to a boom? I'm going to say probably gold. Ha! It fell into my trap. (laughs) (laughs) Australia is often known for gold rushes, but tin, silver, and lead Ah. were what was discovered near Zeehan. So this is one of the things I thought, oh, this is is interesting. I mean, we've heard... Go well, on. I was thinking, I was like, Tassie's not really known for its gold rush compared to other parts in Australia, but the, the west coast of Tasmania is definitely known for its timber. So I was like, oh, maybe it's, hmm. Yeah, look, it was I was it was a <laughs> deliberate question because we have so many things of gold rushes featuring as a, a theme. So we've heard numerous times in our Two Ticks Town Talks, we see a rush of people and money into an area where discoveries have been made and then a decline once the resources are exhausted. ZN's no exception. I thought it was just interesting how big and up and down it was. So tin was discovered at uh, 1871 um, and then silver and lead were discovered in the area in 82, uh, just to a yeah, few years later, 10 years later. Post office opened on August uh, 1988, and 1980 it was actually named the township of Zeehan as it expanded. And 1988? That, or, uh, sorry, uh, uh, 1888. Oh, sorry, I was like, was... wow, that's really new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> sorry, my mistake, 1888. Um. The population in 1910 in Zeehan peaked at 10,000. So we're down to 702. So that's a wow. huge. Yeah. That's a massive. Yeah. And look, here were, here were a couple of things I thought were interesting. During the peak period for mining, which was up to the First World War, there are 159 companies operating in the town. Wow. The town had its own stock exchange with wow. 60 members. Yep. Yeah. And the main street was over 3.2 kilometres long, two two miles in the old uh, money. It had 20 hotels on there, several pubs, a hospital, two th- and two theatres. Uh, had a rivalry with Queenstown, which is a, ni- a nearby town. Um, but during the boom, uh, Zeehan was known as the Silver City. And in the first decade of the 20th century, it was the third largest town in Tasmania. Wow. After Hobart and Launceston. Yeah. So that was. I, what I a fall from grace. Oh, my exactly. goodness. Yeah. So, look, the tins, uh, the tin is still, uh, and I think there's copper as well. Tin is still a big part because, I mean, tins are, tin is quite a green metal in terms of uh, most of its, uh, I think over half of it is used for, for solder. To replace yep. the old lead solder, and then also yep. for tin plating and tins and that. So, yeah, it's it's one yeah. of those unsexy um, metals, but it's a big part of the green revolution. Yeah, it doesn't get as much love as it probably should. No, no, it, it doesn't. 
Unfortunately, all that mining, there's pollution pollution issues. So there was uh, they did a study in 2021. There was lead, copper, cadmium, and arsenic contamination equivalent to the most severely polluted lakes in the world. There'd been a whole lot of out of yeah, whole lot of out of control open cut mining until the Environmental Protection Act of 73 came in. This I thought interesting. They had recent bushfires, which caused an increase in atmospheric mercury levels to three or four times the pre-industrial level due to the release of mercury that had been locked up in the trees. Oh, my goodness, of course. Well, yeah, yeah, you read it, you think, okay, of course, it gets released as well. But, yeah, that sort of blew me away. Uh, So, yeah, that that was an interesting rise and fall of... Zhen and look, they get the they have tourism now, um, but yeah, it's 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 another two ticks town talk that we've seen that that up and down. So a little factoid before we get to the thing that really caught my attention here: um, Zhen has Tasmania's tallest wind farm. So in two thousand and eighteen, mm. construction began on it was two hundred and eighty million bucks. The Granville Harbour Wind Farm. The tallest wind farm, uh, but it took Tasmania to 100% renewable energy. And in 2020, wow. it was Australia's best performing wind farm. So when you say tallest, do you mean like on the highest peak or the towers are the tallest? I couldn't determine that correctly. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't see anything because I did look at it and I didn't see um, something that told me why it was the tallest. So, okay. I'll assume it's the towers because I would too. Otherwise, it would have been highest. So yeah. I suppose, maybe yeah. that's why they don't really sort of didn't make much of a deal on yeah. it, just because yeah, they thought what well, tallest is how tall they are. Yeah. Uh, but here's the unusual bit of information that I didn't know about, which primarily caught my eye about Zihan. So in the introduction, one of one of the food sources of the local Pirapa and Tomajini people was eucalyptus gunnii. So what's so special about that and what was done it done with it? So here's a question for you. What happens when you have sugar in the presence of yeast? Uh, it ferments. Yep. And you get alcohol. Exactly. So a common name for eucalypt gunnii is cider gum. And one thing I didn't ah. know about before this is Aboriginal fermentation. I'd it, never even thought about no, it. Oh, my it, goodness. It, it, exactly. So the local Pirapa and Tomajini people uh, around the area, uh, now known as Zihan, they use the sap of the tree to produce a fermented ver- beverage called Wayalina. Um, I believe other indigenous people in uh, other areas of Tassie might also have used the tree for similar purposes, but this was particularly focused on um, those clans around Zihan. So... While the oil from the leaves of the cider gum can be used as an antiseptic and to treat migraines, the sap is where the fermentation magic happens. And this is from an article in The Conversation. In the past, Aboriginal people tapped the trees to allow the sap, resembling maple syrup, to collect in hollows, in the bark, or at the base of the tree. Ever-present yeast would ferment the liquid into an alcoholic, cider-like beverage that the local Aboriginal people referred to as wayalina. 
and the practice was even, <laughs> unsurprisingly, the practice was adopted by the European settlers such that when the species was described in 1844 for the first time by the British botanist Sir Joseph Dalton Hooker, it was already known as the cider tree or the cider gum. So it's it's not surprising, that's cool. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. Yes, so do I. It's just one of those things as you're looking around for the the towns and so you say, oh, hang on, tick Aboriginal fermentation. Why have I never heard of that? Uh, I, look, in some ways, it's not surprising the Aboriginal people are already aware of the fermentation process to make these beverages. That's occurred in many other cultures around the the world, um, and. That's happened for millennia, and yeah, they're an old, old race of people. So, um, making buddy bush cider that would be me. I, I, I would be that guy that would be like, oh, <laughs> This yeah. is my job, I'll go do, I'll go do this. <laughs> you can imagine um, the settlers coming out and sort of saying, What are you doing? and they, they have a bit of a taste. Of, well, I assume it was friendly enough. Uh, well, actually, that's possibly an incorrect thing, but looking at it and saying, you're kidding me, I can get that out of a tree? <laughs> yeah. I, you go, imagine them going a bit berserk. Um, I was, I, I sort of tried to dig a little bit more. I found it surprising that there has not been a whole lot of, as much study done as I would have expected on the uh, fermentation of, uh, amongst Aboriginal people. Uh, there's a couple of works by a social anthropologist. She was called Maggie Brady, published one in 2018 and one in 2014. I, I didn't purchase them um, or work out how to borrow them for the library, but they were referenced in an article in the conversation by a bloke, uh, Professor Vladimir Jeronik, um, who's a professor of oenology at the University of Adelaide. And oenology is the science and study of wine and wine production. So he's currently studying the studying the subject. He's wanting to sort of get into the nitty gritty of it. So in the sap, he found sugars like glucose and fructose and maltose, as well as some organic acids and alcohol. So yeah, sounds like a very rich substance. He was also um, interested in the fungal species present, you know, yeast being a micro fungi. Uh, but there hasn't been anything conclusive or particularly revelatory at uh, this stage about what he's got in there. So it's sort of, it was one of those, wow, look at this. And then when I tried to dig into it a bit more, it was sort of like, oh, it's still still getting studied. But I I loved it so much, I thought I've got to bring that to the, the table. So look, who knows what future studies will show. But at this point, I thank the township of Zeehan in Tasmania for leading me down another two ticks town talk interesting path. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I, oh, that, I want to try it. I want to yeah, try this yeah, bush you? cider because um, I, I'm a brewer. Uh, uh, listen, our regular listeners will probably remember that I, I make my own beer and, and spirits as well. Um yeah. And yeast is such a funny bunch of creatures because there's wild yeast basically everywhere. Um, and I brew in the same spot of my house. Uh, basically, every time I put a brew on, it's in the same place. And I've noticed in the past uh, quite often 
uh, I'll get uh, I'll I'll mix up the the fermentable uh, sugars and things like that into the water before I put the yeast in just to let it cool down and settle and everything like that. And quite often I've I have found that fermentation has already begun before I've put the yeast in, just because of the yeast out of the air, and possibly because as I dump it in, it's very likely it's a strain of the yeast that I because I normally use the same strain. It's very likely a version of that yeast because I do it in the same spot. It's sort of in my house, so it's a closed, well, relatively closed environment. Um, and it's it, 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 yeast is one of these things that you you can basically never get rid of. It's always you know just around everywhere in the world, sort of thing. So um, I'm sure well, they probably had yeah, and they probably had like their favorite tree, you know, because the 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 little tiny area that that particular yeast strain or because yeast yeah. obviously mutates and things quite regularly so there are so many different strains thousands and thousands of different strains of yeast um and they do of different flavors so the beers that you enjoy different yeasts create different flavors in the product the end product as well so quite often you'll find brewers will search to the ends of the earth to find specific strains of yeast that they like because they want certain flavors so I wonder. I, d- I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that I, the yeast had such an impact on the flavour. Oh, it's probably yeah. It's definitely one of the biggest biggest things. And I would wonder if there were, you know, some of these guys very, you know, pr- protected these trees because they loved the flavours or, or whatever that came wow. off it. Off you know this certain area. This is mine. Leave it alone. You know, sort of thing. Um, this is See, DK's special brew tree. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. But again, probably a lot of that sort of knowledge, unfortunately, has been lost over the years. But yeah. um, I can imagine in my head that that some of this sort of stuff would have been going on at some point. So, nah, how cool! I had no idea. Not, how cool! Nor did I. I thought. I, I, look, I, given your your interest, I thought you'd also be interested in in that. But yeah, mm. it's. Uh, I, I love finding these things out because the, the only. When I was in Hobart uh, many many years ago, I went to there's a there's a distillery in Hobart called the Lark Distillery, like the oh, bird. They make a nice whiskey. They make a very good whiskey, and uh, at the time they also had a I think it was a fairly limited run. They called it Bush Vodka, um, and I was like, "What do you mean Bush Vodka?" And I was like, like, are you moonshining or something like that? And he's like, no, 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 it tastes like the bush. And I was like, what? 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 <laughs> and it, it it did. It tasted like the smell of the bush. It it had sort of eucalyptus-y undertones and these florally scents. And I wouldn't say it was... Like, I, I didn't buy a bottle, let's say that. It wasn't yeah. unpleasant, but it definitely wasn't something I would... But I'm glad I tried it, and it was very unique. And I was like, oh. And I wonder now if they took a little bit of inspiration, perhaps, from from oh. some of this. So, maybe, maybe not. Oh, um, who knows? Anyway, let's move on. Most Australians don't think climate change is a serious problem. 
According to a Griffith University, they've released their annual climate action survey, which explores what thousands of everyday Australians think about climate change. This particular survey this year polled 2,767 people nationwide. Most respondents, 57%, believe that Australia has started to feel the effects of climate change. But only 15% say that climate change is an extremely serious problem now. About 8% think its effects will be felt within the next decade. And 13% say that it'll be apparent within the next 50 years. The results expose a gap between how Australians perceive the threat and the urgency expressed by the global scientific community. The UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warns the planet is likely to cross a critical warming threshold within the next decade. It says immediate drastic shift away from fossil fuels is needed to hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Beyond that, humanity will find it far harder to cope with climate-fueled floods, heat waves, drought, crop failures, and rising seas. But I should add that the survey did have 71% of Australians fear, feel either fairly or very concerned about climate change. So that title is a little bit of clickbait, if I'm honest. Yeah. Survey architect and Griffith University associate professor Kerry Fox Nor- Foxwell Norton says it's alarming there's still such a chasm amid UN warnings of a code red for humanity. She explained that there's definitely a science, signs of change, but it is the sort of change required in this critical decade to keep things below 1.5 degrees. Unfortunately, not. 60, 68% of Australians use their own observations and experiences as the main source of climate information, according to the survey. Associate Professor Foxwell Norton said, after decades of communicating through climate science and prioritising it, it's failing to register in the sorts of timeframes required for transformative change. The reliance on personal observation says that they're not listening to scientists. They're looking at their window and saying, I think the weather's all right. And if people keep relying on their own observations... They're also doing their own storytelling, and that will be a more effective way in which to engage and empower communities, which I think is really good. I think the uptake of this survey, the fact that she's looking at this going, if we keep banging the drum about 1.5 degrees, people clearly aren't listening, or perhaps they're a bit fatigued about hearing it as well. So, which I think there's a bit of both there. So, I like that her takeaway wasn't, bloody Australians aren't listening to us. It was, we need to change the way that we're we're engaging and empowering these communities. And I do think that this is kind of an unusual problem. Um, A bit like the Y2K bug. Ardeen, I know you remember this. Um, And a lot of our listeners hopefully do as well. But this is the, the, the millennium bug, the computer bug. And look, people are probably listening to this laughing and saying, well, wasn't that overplayed? And I can assure you, it actually wasn't. It was a really, really big issue. But it was fixed. We fixed the issue before it came catastrophic. It's one of these weird things that we all got together and we did the changes behind the scenes and then 
nothing really happened. Nothing major happened. There were there were issues, but nothing major yeah. happened. You know, planes didn't fall out of the sky, and like they, you know, they they were telling us all these things. Oh, panic, 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 and the power grid's gonna shut down. And I remember we had our emergency little kit waiting for for you know the the, the clocks to tick over, and the whole world would basically turn into the apocalypse um yep. but it didn't happen and it didn't happen because people listened and they actually got in behind the scenes changed what they needed to change and everything like that and it is actually quite an interesting story yeah um, i think the truth might be somewhere in between those those two i'm not i'm not seeing oh, quite yeah. as rosily uh as as you do i'm not not denying that there was a lot of uh actions that were taken that did make a difference but uh I, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure that it was a case of everyone. <laughs> everyone listened and addressed every system, and uh, everything was all tickety boo after that. But oh just, no, just to you're throw right. that qualifier. Yeah, you're you're right. There were lo- there was a lot of skepticism, and there were organisations that didn't do anything, and they did have major problems. So it, this is one of these weird quirks of history where people kind of have forgotten about it, and and almost I've actually seen some sort of jokes about it being like, oh, remember that? That was a thing. Um, and it yeah, it was a thing, and it was on a on a national level, it was fixed in such a way that power grids didn't didn't flick off and all that sort of stuff. And I think this is a little bit, climate change is a little bit of the same sort of situation. It's the same sort of problem where we need to take drastic measures now to avoid seeing these massive effects. Or really, we probably should have started taking some some of these more drastic um solutions and say like the late 90s and early 2000s but of course people don't want to hear about it and now we are starting to see the effects and understand that the issue is actually quite concerning and we need to do something about it but it might be too late even if we stop burning coal tomorrow sort of thing so i think this is a bit of a weird I, look i don't envy these scientists that are trying to get these messages out of here because it is a bit of a catch-22 you don't want to fatigue the audience that's listening and also i think there's only a certain degree that any one individual person can actually do you know i can't stop burning coal tomorrow because i'm not burning coal uh the power plant that fuels my house is when my lights go off i've got solar on my roof but i don't have a battery system right now so I'm kind of limited as an individual in what I can actually do by contrast to national governments and stuff like that. But, of course, the people do elect the government, and if we want to get serious about climate change, maybe we need to vote some of the parties in. Um, then again, the party that's all about climate change is the Greens, and I'm not going to vote them in. So, <laughs> like I said, it's a catch-22. I'm damned if I do. I'm damned if I don't. What do you think, Ardeet? Do we need to take this more seriously? Oh, I, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> look, I don't blame people for becoming blasé about climate change and having been overloaded with doom porn and failed predictions for over 70 years, but particularly this century when the climate change industry seemed to have been ramped up in line with using, using that film An Inconvenient Truth as a marker, it launched a whole new life to the, the industry. And look, for me, there's there's a limit to how many times you can be woken up in the middle of the night by someone jumping on your bed screaming, you're going to die! (laughs) I think the fatigue is an issue. I think there's also a lack of really solid arguments for Australia to do something, given our impact on the world. 
So at the end, at end of the day, when we're presented with these morality-based arguments and people contrast that with the real and immediate cost of living problems, to me it's no wonder that the theoretical is discarded in favour of the, the practical. I accept climate change and it's probably no surprise to you to hear that I don't accept the government narrative. I've, I've probably made this, um, express this social equation before, but there's one to me that just sticks out to me every time we have arguments like this. And the social equation is science plus politics equals politics. And to me, the science of climate change has been so corrupted by politics that what we tend to get is a political message. So for me, I think yeah. it's a, a it's a threat that we see uh, that we see pot potentially see a lot of evidence for. Um, look, f for me personally, the big benefit of moving to clean energy is it's clean energy. We don't have the pollution. Um, that to me is a massive thing, and I can accept just how much of an impact human society can have on the earth. So I'm not I'm not really anti uh, climate change mess message. However, I'm remarkably highly sceptical. And look, part of that too is you see the you, you see the uh, I think it's biannual COP uh, conferences that the climate change ones where all these grand pledges are made by the people who are you know, flying in on the, the, the jets and going to exotic locations um, and announcing just how wonderful it's going to be. And each year these pledges just fall away, nothing happens. And that's been, that's been going on for decades. So to me, if I look at the words versus the actions – the actions by world governments are really pretty bloody sketchy. And the, the other thing that, that always bothers me in situations like this is the argument against, like if, if I present something like that, inevitably comes into either a, a personal attack or you don't know what you're talking about or you just have to trust the science. I'm sorry, but the last, um, this, this, this year, uh, not the year, this year, um, century, trusting the experts and trusting governments is just just out of the window for me. So look, I think that can be a pity. Um, you know, it's something that can really have an impact on humanity. It's not going to destroy the earth. All this this doom porn and predictions that keep falling off and getting revised, like uh, ancient religious cults who used to say the end of the world is coming. In this week, it, I think it was 1890 or something, was was a thing known as the Great Disappointment, where there was a whole lot of com people convinced around that time, 1879, 1890, that the world was going to end. And then on that actual day, nothing happened. And then suddenly it becomes, oh, no, maybe we misinterpreted the signs this way. So yeah. I... And I tend to think a lot of models are, are, are similar to that. So I think it's a pity because I think it can be. It's a, it is a serious issue that needs to get addressed. Unfortunately, politics has got its greedy little claws into it, and I think it's it's ruined it for everybody. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely <laughs> a, a massive amount of that because, and I think that's why this problem 
is so hard to tackle, you know, because it, it needs to be a governmental shift. It's it's an entire shift in the economy from top to bottom, you know. Energy is primarily what we're talking about and a, a, a massive shift in the way that we um, collect and, and, and essentially... Uh, produce our energy for our entire country. And when you think about countries as competing states, because that's really what they are, uh, suddenly the person that, uh, you know, reduces their energy output is at a disadvantage. So it was always going to become... uh, It was always going to become a political issue. And I think we're kind of at the point where... Honestly, how I see this problem being solved uh, is the global community has come together. We've done the things. We know the science. You know, of course, there's individuals that reject the science, and sometimes the science is overblown or the predictions are a little bit alarmist and things like that. But broadly speaking, we know the science. The The world is – the climate is changing. Generally speaking, it's getting hotter, but not, not always because – the way climate works and da 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 da. Um, we're outside a natural cycle. It's man-made. Da 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 da. It's not going to destroy the world. It may destroy humanity, but the world will be fine. It's done this before. It'll bounce back. It's incredibly yep. resilient. Um, it, it, it will. And and that's look. That's even that other thing. It will not destroy humanity. I mean, it it's it literally will not destroy humanity. It can. It let's let's accept all the um, alarmist. Uh, Actually, let me refrain from the. Let's accept the 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 modelling and how sea levels are going to rise and uh, climate's going to change. It will not destroy humanity because humans adapt and they move. Now, I can accept there might be things like uh, climate refugees, uh, a whole lot of problems and upheaval. I'm not blind to that. I I get those those forecasts. But to say that it's going to be the end of humans because the uh, climate has shifted around the world is, I don't know, it's, it's preposterous to me. So when people talk about uh, it's going to be the end of the earth, it's going to be the end of humanity, I think you're fitting into that social plus political equals political equation. It, it just is not going to yeah. happen. I think we should qualify that as it's going to destroy humanity as it exists today. And there are some people that probably don't care. Um, And I think there's a lot of, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of Australians that go, you know what, what we do on our level and what Australia contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and through the burning of fossil fuels and things like that really is a very small drop in the bucket as compared to China, the USA, Russia, and a lot of other countries. Um, India is really bad as well. Um, And it reminds me a bit of the, the situation of the banning plastic straws. Everyone remembers the turtle video. It it was horrible. Uh, But most plastic pollution in the world comes from, I think it's 10 rivers. Almost all of them are in Southeast Asia or Africa. So 
you know, your local McDonald's banning plastic straws, are you really making a difference or is it a bit of a token gesture? It's probably more of a token gesture than actually making a difference. And I think the average Australian is kind of aware of this as well. And they're going, well, you know, I've got solar panels on my roof and I don't drive that much and, you know, my car's efficient in that. And I'm kind of giving it the best that I as an individual can do. You know, I bloody, I recycle my cans and stuff and I bloody compost my food for the chooks or whatever it is. And I think individually we're all doing these little bits, right? But it's not, even if Australia went completely green tomorrow, we're not the ones that are the biggest problem and it's not going to solve the problem as an individual country. And I think that's a little bit where, you know, I've seen headlines, oh, Australians are apathetic towards climate change. And it's like, well, maybe we're not as stupid as the headlines say and we've actually got a bit of an idea of what's going on and yeah we're moving in the right direction maybe it's a little bit slow but maybe it doesn't really matter so much because we're not the biggest contributor so if we are a little bit slow a little bit tardy it doesn't really matter that much so i don't know you know we've spoken a lot about how this current uh government is looking to increase the transition to green energy which i think is really good um all these emerging industries are really, really good. And also just taking taking uh, market share away from some of these huge oil companies is going to be nothing but good, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, the headline of are Australians really, what did I say? Most Australians don't think climate change is a serious problem. I think it's more nuanced than that. I don't think that's quite true. I think we're aware we're limited in what we can do and... Maybe we need to pass the buck to the players that can actually do the major things, you know. Yeah, and there's a certain irony in that that headline is again sensational, and when you dig into the details, it's not accurate. So, look, and it, yeah, yeah, and that harms the message they're trying to say, right? Exactly. Look, probably, and um, you, you can, you, you can, Albo. Again, we know you uh, listen to us uh, fairly regularly. Here's an angle that you might want to be able to take. On the EcoWatch um, website, one of the uh, things that was identified with climate change is that beer could lose its bitter taste due to climate change. So they say in there, since the cultivation of high-quality aroma hops is restricted to relatively small regions with suitable environmental conditions, there is a serious risk that much of the production will be affected by individual heat waves or drought extremes that are likely to increase under global climate change, the authors of the study wrote. So, Albo, when you're up there and you're uh, doing your next thing on climate change, just as you're about to walk out the door, say, oh, by the way, your beer might lose its favour. Anyway, I'm off. People go, what? Hang on a tick. This is yeah. something real that we can this we is be knocking on the door. Hey, hey, come back yeah. out. Come back out. We've got to find <laughs> out what's <laughs> This is a serious problem. That's it, because most hops grow between about 15 to 21 degrees Celsius. So it is pretty cool, generally, to grow hops. Though, in saying that, there are hop strains that need a lot lower than that, and there are hop strains that can be a lot higher than that. So... um 
It's not all doom and gloom, but I think you're right. I think, Elvo, when you're at the next uh, COP summit or maybe, you know, when you go to the United Nations, start asking people how much they like their beer. Do you like a good Australian pale ale? Because you might be ruining it uh, (laughs) if you don't get your act together. Joe Biden strikes me as someone that likes a beer. Maybe you should pull his finger out and do a bit more. um, Yeah, hashtag cops for hops. That's it. Oh, look at that. How good is that? Oh. Now, Vladimir Putin strikes me more of as a, a whiskey or a vodka man, and Xi Jinping strikes me as a bloke that doesn't drink. So I don't think those guys probably would care too much. I think you might. Well, I actually wanted to say that. Yep. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to this week in Australian history. I come from a all right, this week in Australian history, we covered the period of 17th of October to 23rd of October. 17th of October, the Melbourne Daily in 1854. The Melbourne Daily newspaper, The Age, was first published. Uh, Eight, yeah, yeah, well known. That's, one really, that's actually really old, I, 1854. I know. That's a while yeah. ago, isn't it? Yeah. What's that, 1854? That's a hundred and sixty-nine. Is that right? Seventy-nine. Something like that. Shirt like. Eighteen ninety-eight. The Perth Zoo opens with two lions and a tiger. Uh, hell, we we like a good early zoo factoid. It seems to come up in our. <laughs> in our I like uh, straight out of the bat though. They got two lions and a yeah. tiger. Like holy moly, <laughs> not wasting any time. No, that's not bad. We're, the the country town where I was born tried to start up a, a zoo when I was was young, but all I ha- all, all it had in there was a little dog. It was a shit zoo. <laughs> No, I can't claim credit for that. Obviously, that's an oldie <laughs> bit of goodie. 1900, natural gas is found at uh, Roma in Queensland. Didn't know and that's where it came from. Still out there in that area. Oh, All the yeah. gas fields that's are still going bigger. out there. So, what's, yeah. the, what's the basin out there? It's a not, not Cooper Basin. Um, uh, oh, we can we can look at it's yeah it's it's a well yeah, yeah. well yeah. known area. Still going. Uh, 1917. Sorry, go on. No, no, yeah, still going. It's still happening. 1917, the two halves of the Trans-Australian Railway meet. So Trans-Australian Railway uh, goes from Port Augusta in South Australia to Kalgoorlie in WA. Goes across the Nullarbor Plain. Um, That's the only rail corridor there. And it includes the world's longest section of completely straight track, which is 478 K, so 297 miles of just pure straight track. So, yeah. Yeah. And a bit like a gun, you can can jump on the train. Was it the Indian Pacific, Indo-Pacific, something like that? Um, And you can do the journey across today, which is cool. Yeah, exactly. Uh, October 18th, uh, another railway, 1869, the Lithgow Zigzag Railway was opened. Oh, um, we spoke about this when we did the Two Ticks Town talk for the Lithgow. Yes. Yeah, I don't recall when that was. I need to put out some sort of index <laughs> or something. Uh, yeah. Um, Most importantly, there's a brewery. 
There. There's a beer brewery at the zigzag. It's still there. Reopened. It's still going. Ah, in keeping with yeah. our theme. <laughs> 1980, the federal election sees Malcolm Fraser's Liberal National Coalition government re-elected for a third consecutive term, but with, uh, albeit with a half, uh, almost half majority. October 19, 1812, the indefatigable, the first direct convict transport from Britain to Tasmania arrives in Hobart. 1872, Holterman's Nugget. The nugget was... Uh, it was 82.11 kilograms of gold, and wow. it was in a granite slab. Um, that was found inside in a granite slab. Wow. Yeah. Found it. So, a, a 286 kilogram slab of granite containing the 80, 82 kilogram nugget was found in New South Wales. Ah. So, yeah. 1979. You'd, well, you'd be happy to, for, for that piece oh. to be the, the one you got for uh, your. Your uh, kitchen bench, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, bloody hell. God. <laughs> Covered the whole, cost of the whole kitchen and some. Bloody oath. God, 82 kilos of gold. Uh, 1979, the Australian Federal Police is established. Uh, 1991, the perjury trial of former Queensland Premier Sir Joby Occupy-Peterson ends in a hung jury. Prosecutors decided against a retrial on the basis of Joe's advancing age and divided public opinion, which is an interesting little twist in there on the prosecution. Yeah, uh, he's he's got a very divisive legacy in Queensland. Some people mm. love him, some people don't. It's it's yeah, yeah, it's a bit weird. It is a bit is a bit weird. He's a um, a big character. Yes. Two thousand uh, year two thousand October nineteen. Charles Perkins, Aboriginal activist, uh, dies. October twentieth, nineteen seventy three. The Sydney Opera House is opened by Queen Elizabeth II. Um, nineteen eighty seven. The Black Monday stock market crash causing the All Ordinaries Index to fall 25%. Singus Biggle, single biggest one-day drop in the market's history. That's uh, an insane drop. Um, 1989, the Grafton bus crash occurs with 21 people killed and 22 injured when a tourist bus collides with a semi-trailer on the Pacific Highway near Grafton. October 21, 1944, the heavy cruiser HMAS Australia is rammed by a Japanese aircraft while operating in the Philippines in what is claimed to be the first kamikaze attack. Yep. Yeah. 1978, civilian pilot Fredri Valentik Titch vanishes in a Cessna 182 over Bass Strait south of Melbourne after reporting contact with an unidentified aircraft. So, yeah, that was a... Uh, this is of one of these... Yeah, this is one of those weird ones that a lot of UFO people, you know, it happened and all that. I've heard of this a few times and... I don't know. There's, it, it's just a mystery. Like, he probably crashed or... Like, we don't know, you know. And look, who knows what the um, unidentified aircraft was? 
It um, doesn't mean it was aliens, but you know, well, it, was no, de- but it was definitely aliens. Yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't rule it out. <laughs> wow, that's it. There's a non-zero chance. That's right, a non-zero <laughs> chance. <laughs> Uh, 2002, two people die in the Monash University shooting, which uh, Howard used to usher in a whole lot more gun laws on gun the, the handguns. Yeah. Yep. Um, October 22, 1894, Martha Needle is hanged in Melbourne jail or Gale uh, for the poisoning of a husband and three children in an attempt to obtain money from insurance policies. Can't imagine she was missed. Um, 1929, James Scullin becomes the ninth PM of Prime Minister of Australia. 2003, US President George W. Bush and President of the People's Republic of China, Hu Jintao, visit Australia simultaneously. 2003, don't think we're going to see that again in a rush. No. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's all right. Uh, October 23, on the home straight now on the last day, 1937, the ACTU calls on the government to boycott trade with Japan following the Japanese invasion of China. 1942, the Battle of El Alamein in Egypt began with a massive artillery bombardment preceding attacks by British and Australian divisions. And in 1991, the first general strike in 65 years takes place in New South Wales. And I'm sure that on the day of the strike, a number of them signed off and went down to the pub and thought, you know what, I could do with a beer. I could, I could, I could do with a beer. All right. The 4X bottle top question. I don't have a beer, but I do have a rum. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, I've got two. One is very, well, it should be easy, uh, and one's a little bit more difficult. And I'll I'll let you decide which one's which. Um, So let's kick it off. What percentage of Australians live on the coast? I should qualify this. When they got the statistic, I think they were talking within about 100 k's of the coast. Oh, so when you sit here, when you see those maps that show Mm. the concentration, what percentage of Australians? Hmm. What do we got? 25 mil. It's going to be four. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, but somewhere between 68 and 77%. I'm going to say 74%. Well, I think it's worth remembering that Melbourne, the populations of Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane is about 52% of the population of Australia. So, based on this incredibly, more than likely, slightly incorrect trivia from a bottle cap, they say about 90% of Australians live 
And I think that's probably more right than not, if I'm honest. Because if you include, Ooh, right, yeah. you know, there's a lot of big towns along the coast. You go all the way up to, to Port Douglas and Cairns, Townsville, you know, all the way down to Tassie, Perth, you know. I so think what it's. Was, what, what was the percentage they said? They just said more than 90. No, they just said 90, but. You know, uh, it's a bottle cap, so I think it's probably more more right than not. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, look, but yeah, when, when you do that with the fifty, and you talk about those other towns, yeah, my um, my calculation was out. So, oh, okay, God, I hope that wasn't the easy one. <laughs> well, <laughs> this one might be the easy one. What place is informally referred to as the Apple Isle? Oh, that one is the easy one. I know Tasmania on that yep. one. Tasmania. Interesting little link into the cider gum. <laughs> Which is kind of, that was complete by chance. Ah. Uh, and our listeners are probably rolling their eyes saying, no, it wasn't. I don't know. Uh, we we draft up the two text town talk and very specifically don't tell each other what they're about because it's kind of a bit of fun uh, to reveal it on the day. So um, I had no idea it was going to be in Tasmania, but it does tie in nicely with the ah. cider gum. So oh, very good. on that, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe, give us an honest review, as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you. Good night. And tell your mum I love her. <laughs> See you, DK. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>